This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Rico Bronia time, everybody. How are we all doing? Getting through this World Series, the Diamondbacks against the Rangers. Here's what I know. When the World Series ends, the fun begins. When the World Series ends, the offseason begins. We get all those things on the baseball calendar that are so exciting. So exciting. Like, hey, should you tender contracts to this guy? Hey, should you offer this guy? Um, the qualifying offer. Hey, what's going to happen at the GM meetings? What rumors are happening? When's Otani going to sign? So all the fun begins as soon as this stupid World Series ends. We'll focus on a couple of things today. Rob Manfred met the media, spent a couple of minutes on some of the things he had to say about changes. But our focus is going to be Tommy Pham because Tommy Pham did an interview, did a bunch of interviews. It's crazy. This guy does not mind talking, and I respect that. But he did a couple of interviews one of which with the Baseball Isn't Boring podcast. And he had some very interesting comments kind of going deeper into the whole Met clubhouse and the Mets working hard and things around the trade, plus a comment about Buck Showalter and his managerial style and where some of those decisions were coming from that I definitely want to get into. But let's start with counsel. The Mets have received permission to interview him. Here's how I view the counsel thing. And I've said from the beginning, I think the Mets end up with him. I think that it's either the Brewers or the Mets. I do think there's that chance, that possibility. Council's basically saying to his agent, I want to end up back in Milwaukee for the family connections, for the fact that I've been there for almost a decade. But let's milk this bitch out as much as we can to get the very last dime, which there's nothing wrong with. You know, you get to free agency as a manager. It's not that common. You know, usually managers are locked up before they get into that free agent year before period, like before getting to free agency, they usually sign an extension with a year or two left on their deal. So it's rare for a manager to get to this point. And I get it. If you're Craig counsel, I get it. When you've got teams all hot for you because you're the best manager out there. Think about it. Who else is out there? The other managers that are out there are guys that have been fired or first-time managers. That's it. I mean, that's usually what you're looking at when you're hiring a manager. So he's got that advantage. He hasn't been fired. He's not an old, recycled guy. He's not a first-time manager. So whether you're Cleveland or you're the Angels or you're the Mets or whoever you are, the Padres now with Bob Milfin going to the Giants, why wouldn't you want him? He'd be your best candidate. So it makes perfect sense for counsel to kind of get to free agency 
and just add as much kind of push to the Brewers possible to maximize his salary. He was making $3.5 million. The guy's looking to double it, and there's a chance if Steve Cohen really wants Craig Council, and this is something about hiring a manager that's so much easier than signing a free agent. I always used to say this during the Wilpon era. If you really want to make a splash at manager, spending $8 million for a manager, which is a lot, is nothing compared to buying the big-time free agent. So Cohen, who is still new to this owning thing, has spent a ridiculous amount of money on free agents. He extended Lindor after the trade, signed Scherzer, signed Verlander. He must be laughing at the idea of, oh, so to blow Craig Council away, I got to give him five years, 50 million? Who the hell cares? That's nothing. That barely signs you utility players in Major League Baseball. So there is that possibility if Steve Cohen and David Stearns really, really want him, that they're just going to sit there and continue to push more money into that table until Craig Council says yes. I lean towards yes. I think he's going to be the manager of this team. He will get a chance to interview. What is that interview like? I've always been fascinated about that. What happens in a managerial interview these days? Like, what do you talk about? Is it basically the GM saying, okay, how well do you take orders, sir? When I call you at 435 and say, this is your lineup, what are you going to say? Especially Council and Stearns. They have a good relationship. So I'm still at the 80-20 prediction that Council's the manager of the New York Mets. And it's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. Do you have that same confidence, Pete? Yeah. The one thing is there's just two comments here. A, Steve Cohen is not going to really be in on this interview. I can't imagine him. It's just basically like Stearns is going to tell him, this is the guy. This yeah. is the money. Let's make it happen. Yes. I think that I think the interview process is they're going to go out to a nice steakhouse in the city. He's going to show them around, say, hey, listen, it's not as bad as you think. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's where I grew up. They, they've made – they fixed some places better, up better, and they're going to do – you know, it's going to be – it's going to be big. We're going to do good things together. Why not come here? That's what the comment is. So, it's almost be a sell job. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say it's not an interview. It's a sell job. It's right. convincing him – Please come here. I said this last time on the Rico. I really believe it. If they hire him, when they hire him, I'll remain confident. It is going to be like, we'll even do an immediate Rico reaction. What are we going to say? Like, oh, great. They hired Craig Council. All right, let's go. <laughs> okay, what's going on with Otani? That's <laughs> basically what it's going to be. Right, exactly. <laughs> Rob Manfred did a couple of interviews. He did one with my boy Craig. He did one with the national media. I think he did a press conference, if memory serves correct. And the investigation into the Mets, he didn't say a lot other than the injured list investigation is really just about that. And that's pretty important because when the New York Times came out with that initial article a few days after Billy Epler resigned, there was this thought, I think it was even in the article, that there could be more, that there could be something else they're investigating. And that always makes you wonder, well, what, what do you got? Is it something big? Is it something serious? I think that this investigation of just improper use of the IL only leads, in my opinion, to a small fine and then maybe Major League Baseball trying to enforce tougher rules on everybody that you can't use the IL to just store guys, that you can't manipulate the injured list. So if anything, I don't think it really comes down hard on the Mets, but it may change maybe 
the way we've all viewed the injured list and disabled list before that for many years, which is, ah, this guy's struggling. Stick him on the IL. Manfred also seemed open to at least discussing a change to the current playoff format. We did a whole podcast, if you missed it, on the playoff format and all the various ideas. We all have to change it and make it better. I did not walk away from that comment, though, feeling confident that Manfred's actually going to change anything. Just, we'll talk. We'll have a, we'll have a conversation. Yeah, it's not going to really happen. But he did say something I really, really like. I really, really like. He talked about a rule change that would include lowering the limit on pitchers. Right now on Major League rosters, and this was a relatively new rule from a few years ago, you cannot have more than 13 pitchers on your active roster. And if you listened to a lot of the Ricos during spring training last year, you would know that's the bane of my existence. I argued so often, you don't need 13 pitchers. Just have 12 pitchers. Then you've got an extra position player. Then you can carry Tim LaCastro. I mean, we must have had that discussion all March last year because it drove me nuts. Now, ultimately, as the season goes by and Verlander gets hurt and Quintana's hurt and the Mets are relying on Tyler McGill and David Peterson in their rotation, there were many days where the Mets needed all 13 guys. I do admit that. But in general, I like the idea of having an extra position player, even in the DH world we now live in. Rob Manfred's talking about that number being lowered to 12. So it's not even an option to carry 13 pitchers. By the way, if you're curious, well, why? Why would that even be a thing? They're trying to incentivize, and who would be against this? They're trying to incentivize teams pushing their starting pitchers to go deeper into games. We have so many times, so many examples. We saw it in the NLCS with Merrill Kelly. We didn't see it in the World Series with Merrill Kelly because they actually let him pitch more. But he got pulled after five brilliant innings. And you're like, come on, man. The guy could go deeper into the game. And there's a lot of games like that during the regular season. Not when you're just trying to save a guy's arm, but when you're strategically thinking, hey, third time around the order, let's get him out after five. So the thought being, if there are less options, if there are less arms for you to use, maybe that'll force managers to push their starters more. That was the hope of 13, because it wasn't that long ago when teams would carry 14 guys pitching-wise. So it didn't work when they cut it to 13. They may try to make it work when they limit it to 12. I love it. It's not, you know, a game-changing rule change. I don't even necessarily think it's going to have the effect that maybe the commissioner is looking for, but I'm all for it. Now, it'll save me the energy from bitching in mid-March about the Mets should carry 12 pitchers. If it just becomes a rule, I don't even have to say it anymore. So I definitely, definitely want that. I'm laughing at it because it's a joke. We're trying to find <laughs> way because we're paying all this money to starting pitching, and we're trying to be like, "Hey, is there any way you can get past five? Can we can we find a way to get you getting paid all this money? Can we get you past five innings?" And it's because and, and listen, I understand the carrying thirteen pitchers, but all of a sudden there's going to be well, if we can only if we only can carry twelve pitchers, but we're still concerned about the five innings. What happens when they put the rotation to six pitchers in a rotation? Because that's going to start to happen. We we saw it a little bit here and there. There's all these di- different things. And part of it is you're going to have more call-ups then. Well, yeah, you're going to have more call-ups. And you know what else you're going to have? Just to give you the full circle, 
more IO manipulations to get. I mean, get what are we doing here? Called up. That's what it'll lead to. <laughs> I, I, the tone of the way you started that, though, Pete, was as if you blame the starters for not going deeper into games. And I reject that to a degree because the managers and front offices, you know, because front office obviously have a lot of power in these decisions. They're the ones who a lot of times are making the decisions to take the starting pitchers out earlier than maybe we as fans want to see it happen. So I don't necessarily think it's about the starters and ah, they make so much money. They should go deeper in games. They're not the ones who get to make that decision. No, you're not wrong, but and, and this is a deeper discussion in baseball today. It really is based off the pitch count and in at all levels of baseball, Guy gets pulled after a certain pitch, and it's not always 100 pitches. It's, you know, trying to develop an arm. Let's give him 70 today. Let's give him 50 today, whatever it is. And these pitchers are pitching less and less and less. They're not going yes. nine innings. They don't know how it is to pitch a complete game. No, no, I agree. Sometimes it it kind of starts at the lower levels. It's a part of why the DH became such a no-brainer to many of my fellow National League fans who at a time wanted the pitcher to hit. What I mean by that is, at the lower levels, pitchers weren't hitting. You know, in the minor leagues, pitchers weren't hitting. In Japan, pitchers weren't hitting. In some colleges, pitchers weren't hitting. And so if pitchers never got a chance to hit, and now all of a sudden they're in the major leagues, and it's like, here's a bat you have to hit. They're the only league that lets this happen. Of course they were going to be embarrassing. You know, of course. If, if guys were hitting at every level, then pitchers may have been more productive or at least as productive as maybe they were 40 years ago. Not that they were ever super productive, but it got worse as the years went by. One last thing, though, about Rob Manfred and rules, because I want to circle back to this. I think it's very, very important before we get into Tommy Pham. You and I, we even brought a listener on earlier in the season, argued about the pitch clock. I have been a big fan of the pitch clock. I was a huge fan before it even was instituted. Obviously, I think it worked incredibly well this season. Your fear and others, that dude who came on with us, who did a great job arguing, was concerned about what about the playoffs? What about the drama of the World Series, of the LCS? Well, here we are in the midst of the World Series. We have gotten through the wild card round, the divisional series, the LCS. Wouldn't you now agree? Wouldn't you have to come around and say, boy, that pitch clock is really good? Well, the one thing that you talked about, uh, and this is an off-air thing, is it's like, hey, listen, we got a plan to record the Rico after Game uh, Seven the other day. It's like, don't worry, they don't go longer than three hours. That's just with the pitch clock. That's what it is, <laughs> and and you nailed it. <laughs> so yeah, I get for for that matter, you're 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 right. I mean, listen, there's there's still time left in the World Series for it to happen, but most likely we're not going to see anything too major happen. And 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 for that, Godspeed. I I my bad. It is not, I want to say this though, it's not about time of game. It's not necessarily about, I want these games to go quicker. I always wanted them to cut out the dead time. There was a four hour game in game one of the World Series. It was an incredibly long game, but you know what? It was worth every second of it. It was an incredible game. You get a game tying home run in the ninth inning. You get a game winning home run a few innings later. Like that was a four-hour game that was filled with action. What you don't want to see and what we did see were four-hour games that were filled with a lot of dead time. But the concern and the pushback always was you're going to take away the drama. And I just don't think that was the case. And what made me feel good coming into this season that that was never going to be the case 
was that Edwin Diaz was such a fast worker that we had already gotten a preview of the pitch clock. We as Met fans in 2022 already saw what it was going to look like with a pitch clock because Edwin Diaz would get the freaking baseball and he would just throw it. So if you were ever concerned about what the ninth inning would look like, we saw it and it worked out great. So I think year one of the pitch clock's been fantastic. More on rule changes maybe at a later podcast. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Let's get to Tommy Pham. Tommy Pham made a lot of news, I guess it was about a month ago, with that athletic article that went deep into the Mets' issues from 2023, trying to diagnose what went wrong, besides the obvious, which is that their pitching sucked. Let's go deeper. And one of the things that came out of that athletic story was Tommy Pham being really, really critical of the work ethic of position players in the locker room. Tommy Pham is not one to shy away from a controversy or a comment. So Tommy Pham is open and honest. And right before the World Series started, he met with the hordes of media members, the Joel Shermans of the world, the John Heymans of the world, David Lennon. It's like we sent all our New York beat writers out to the World Series to talk to Tommy Pham, not because we care about Diamondbacks Rangers, but because we wanted more information about what Tommy said concerning the New York Mets locker room. But here's a little bit of a cliff notes. Some of the things Tommy had to say, and then we will respond, or at least give our opinions on what he had to say. Let's start off with how difficult it was being traded. Tommy, was it tough being traded? Getting traded is tough. Getting traded, and this year it was, it was harder. It was harder for me because I wasn't expecting to get traded when I signed with the Mets. I didn't expect that situation to occur. Like, when I signed at Cincy, Nick was very honest with me. He said, Tommy, we're rebuilding. If, at the deadline, if we have a chance, we're going we're gonna to make some moves. If not, we're going to go the opposite way. So I was prepared for that. I wasn't prepared this year. So it hurt. And it also hurts when, you know, you build relationships with guys and and it's just it gets snatched right out of you. So and, and in all honesty, when I got traded here, I mean I know Longo for playing against him, I always say what's up. I know Marte. So I always say what's up to him. But everyone else I didn't have a level of friendship with. So I had to it's like the first day of school or or you get you know your parents move to another neighborhood and you got to go to a new school like you know you have to rebuild everything and in the middle of the year that's, that's tough there's a human element to this that people don't understand so it, it was harder for me this year that was actually explained pretty well by Tommy. You know, we, we don't think about that sometimes. We just assume everybody who plays Major League Baseball knows each other and they're buddies. 
And Tommy basically said there were two guys I knew, everybody else. I'm like, I don't know these guys. That would be very, very awkward. I would think when you sign with the New York Mets, with that kind of payroll, with that kind of roster, yes, you went in there thinking there's no way I'm going to be traded. But when you combine two things that happened, number one, they sucked. And number two, Tommy, and he said in an interview, I think, with David Lennon, like I mentioned, he's done a bunch of these interviews over the last few days. He was bothered by the fact he wasn't playing a lot early in the season and felt like the Mets told him he was going to play a lot more than he actually was. Eventually, he got so hot, that went away because he ended up playing every single day, became one of the more consistent players until he was finally traded. But yeah, I could see why that would be a big shock. I think everybody was shocked. I think I think that this season turning as sour as it did and turning so sour that you knew in July guys should be traded was stunning for all of us. Tommy was also asked about this locker room and not speaking up in this locker room, especially considering position players apparently weren't working that hard. You've mentioned being traded, I think, four times, so you've been a lot of places. Did you feel like you could speak up, say, in the Met clubhouse and say to the people you felt were falling short? It's not like you're a rookie, right? You're a player of stature. Yeah, I mean, every, a lot of guys have great amounts of service time in New York. You know, if you don't know how to be a pro with, you know, four-plus years of service time, man, then... You see where this game is headed. They, I went to the the meetings when we were negotiating with the owners, and they said players used to get five and a half years of service time, like eight years ago. That was an average service time. Now it's three and a half. So I just look at it like you know, if you're not being a pro. You're going to be out of the game soon, sooner than later. You know, look, there's a reason why I'm, I'm still able to play, man. Um, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm not putting up 17, 18, 19 numbers, but everyone knows I'm a, I'm a pro's pro. He is a pro's pro. But what does that mean? Like, that that's the thing I wonder about. Does that mean that the Mets were filled with guys who weren't pro's pros? that there were a lot of guys in this room that don't try hard, that weren't working as hard as they should. I mean, Tommy Pham is a hard worker and maybe one of the hardest workers in all of baseball. And I'm not saying that everybody in that room will work as hard as him because they probably don't. But does that make them guys that, as he was saying, are going to be out of baseball because they aren't working that hard? Like, well, what do you take out of that? I, I Again, yeah, I think it's more about him. And I'm not trying to be making like a selfish thing like – he, I feel like he's this type of player where uh, he, he puts it on himself and, and those expectations and doesn't have to um, – everyone else kind of needs to do it for themselves, you know? I, that, that's kind that's kind of what I got. And actually, to be honest, there's a clip that's kind of attached to that where he's addressing more about the locker room and what his comments were with earlier on. So I think this kind of goes hand in hand. Too. All right, let's hear that. You mentioned the respect that you had for Buck and, and leveling with you about some of those lineup decisions. You raised a lot of eyebrows back in New York when you talked about you thought the team as a whole maybe didn't work to, up to your standards or work hard enough. 
what, what do you the position players I said yeah yeah what, was it, what, was the, what was the context really because it, it was just kind of that sentence that was kind of taken out of your statement was it just that was it just that simple that you just felt that the guys just maybe didn't have the grind or they weren't so I do feel like there's a level a certain level of of requirements every day I understand and I do know I work harder than most, so I'm, I'm not comparing anyone to me. I'm comparing everyone to what I believe is the level of expectations, and, and that's what I meant by it. Yes, I do feel like there's a level of expectations um, and, and preparation and work ethic going into the game. And I was very honest. I just didn't feel like it was being met as a whole. I didn't. I didn't call anyone out. I didn't. I didn't. You know. But I'm sure if, if anyone disagrees with me over there, then man, you got to take a long look in the mirror and, and, and be honest. Be a very honest self-evaluator. You know what's funny, though? I want him to call people out. <laughs> he didn't call anybody individually out, but I think we as Met fans, as we look towards 2024, we want to know. It's like, who's lazy? Who's not working hard? Now, in those comments to The Athletic that he had made previously that started this whole thing, he did point out that Pete Alonso and Francisco Lindor and Brandon Nemo worked very, very hard, which makes us all do this process of elimination game All right, well, who's lazy? And then it leads to this question. And this is really, I think, the important one for us as fans, even though ultimately it's up to David Stearns, not us. But we all have opinions. Should that lead to the Mets taking those guys that aren't working as hard and getting rid of them? I mean, if you're David Stearns, if you're Steve Cohen, because it does sound like Steve Cohen had a good relationship with Tommy Pham. David Stearns can't talk to Tommy Pham anymore. I guess Steve Cohen really can't either. It's tampering but almost as like an exit interview to find out, and maybe they already have, like, what the hell do you mean? Because that will benefit us in trying to build this team next year. Not that Tommy Pham's comments needs to be the gospel. I do believe it's his opinion, and he has certainly has every right to that opinion. Doesn't mean that Cohen and Stearns has to take everything he said and run with it, but that's what I take away, Pete. I take away, all right, So there were guys in that room, position players, he made that very, very clear, position players who were not working hard enough in his mind. And this is a guy in Tommy who's been in a lot of locker rooms, been in a lot of teams, played with a lot of players. He's now a National League champion competing in the World Series. So he does have some credibility here. And it makes me wonder, and I'm sure you wonder, all right, who's the problem? And then what are we supposed to do about it? Well, you, you said something, and I honest honest question here. Now, maybe it's just the dumbest thing in the world, but former employee of the Mets, he's going to be a free agent. You're telling me they can't have a conversation with him at all? David Stearns can't call him up and say, hey, what? listen, you're a former employee. When you're off the team, you're no longer in contract. Just want to have some sort of conversation with you. Maybe, we're, maybe we think about having you come back too, Maybe, but, but maybe also we want to fix things. Well, by we the way, he could fit this team. I mean, oh, my God, yes. Him again. Seriously. And, and it's not crazy to trade a guy away and then sign him. I mean, I think that was our plan with David Robertson out of the bullpen. We've seen that before. Yeah, no, no. Once he's a free agent, yeah, then it's not tampering. I kind of meant now. 
I mean, because he's on the yeah. Arizona Diamondbacks in the Correct. World Series. But yeah, once he's available again, he certainly makes sense to come back into that room. But also, yeah, like it doesn't mean what he says should lead to crazy trades. You know, if he said, because one of the names he leaves out in at least the athletic article of putting over was Jeff McNeil. And that's a prominent Met who he didn't say a word about. Doesn't mean he's lazy. Doesn't mean anything. But even if Tommy Pham said, yeah, I don't think Jeff McNeil works that hard. Does that necessarily mean they have to trade him? No. But you want to know. You want to know as much about this mess you inherited of your David Stearns as humanly possible. He also said, and I want you to play this clip because I find it fascinating. It also had me debating it, that he believes the Mets are more talented, were more talented than the reigning National League champion Arizona Diamondbacks. Let's hear Tommy Pham explain that one. That team is talented. That team is more talented than this team. Let's be honest here. But what makes this team different is everyone is still at this level trying to reach their max potential. You know, and my max potential now might be, you know, the everyday, average everyday player. You know, I, I'm still trying to play like 17, 18, 19. That's what keeps driving me. I'm trying to prove I still got that in me. And there might be a time where I show it consistently for a month or two. And there's times where I show like, all right, I don't belong but that's what keeps driving you know the drive wasn't there Mm. and that drive is is here that's what separates this team from from most teams you know you have guys that are still trying to get better every day you have teammates trying to help guys get better and and that's dangerous You know what's so frustrating? The Arizona Diamondbacks just being in the World Series is frustrating. And it's not about the franchise. It's not about the fans. It's not nothing about that. You know, obviously we were rooting for the Diamondbacks to beat the Philadelphia Phillies. You know, the Diamondbacks are a they're a non-offensive team. But what I mean by them being frustrating is Tommy isn't wrong. Like you look at the talent, and I'm talking one through twenty-six. You look at the pitching. You look at the position players, you look at the entire roster, and then you look at the performance. Look at what they put up this season. The Diamondbacks are not a great team. They had a below average team ERA this year. The Mets had a better team ERA than the Arizona Diamondbacks. Let that sink in for a second. The Mets, whose pitching was their biggest issue. The Mets pitched better over 162 games than the Arizona Diamondbacks. And they've got good, young, talented players. Don't get me wrong. We all know how good Corbett Carroll is. Ketel Marte has been a hell of a player for a bunch of years. But you look at them, and Tommy's right. They're not that good. Now, there is something that he's leaving out, which is they got hot at the right time. They they, they won 84 games. They barely made the playoff. They won two more games than the San Diego Padres. The San Diego Padres, who we all know how talented they are, but had major issues in their locker room. At least that's been reported that they have. They just made a managerial change. The Diamondbacks won two more games than the San Diego Padres. They only won nine more games than the Mets, and the Mets sold all their guys off. But the Diamondbacks made the playoffs 
And I don't know if it's just strictly, as Tommy says, the drive of the team. It could also just be the luckiness of the team. They started playing great baseball at the right time. All of a sudden, they're winning two games against the Brewers. They're winning three straight against the Dodgers. And they're shockingly winning a game six and seven in Philadelphia. I believe them that there's a drive there. I believe them that you got a young, hungry, underdog team that, you know, playing their asses off. No question about it. But there's also that element of frustration that this is just an 84-win team that finished 16 games behind the Dodgers, only two games ahead of the Padres, only three games ahead of the Giants. Both those teams changed their manager. Think about that. Over the course of 162 games, they were separated by two games from the San Diego Padres. They were only a game better than the Chicago Cubs, who didn't make the playoffs. They had the same record as the Miami Marlins, who were like an afterthought this season. But they got hot. They got hot at the right time. But the one thing he says, and I, I, there's a clip I want to play here, and I pulled it for a reason. It wasn't really Mets-related, but it was just another team he focuses on. And this is why I think Tommy Pham is so valuable. Because you look, again, it's it's not about what he could do on the field. It's what he brings off the field too, what he can bring to a younger team. And he's talking about the St. Louis Cardinals here. And I think it's really interesting uh, to take a listen and why maybe we do want to bring him back more as a Met. All right, let's hear it. When I reflected on that, the last time that I saw that was St. Louis. That's why St. Louis had such a, a winning culture because they had Yachty and Wayne. They were those guys that were helping the other guys get better. Because if winning mattered to them the most, they looked at it like, all right, if I can get this guy better, that guy better, we're going to win more games. Yachty, Yachty, this is back before I was given a card in the outfield and told where to play. You know, that's how it is. Man. I, I get I get a card, they tell me where to play. Yachty took me into the video room. You know, in the minor leagues, we read swings. Yachty took me into the video room, and he goes, Tommy, I'm going to show you how to how to position yourself in the outfield. I was playing center in the Cardinals. He showed me where to position guys, you know, along with reading swings to make me better, to make the team better. It's not, I mean, is it like that today? Not necessarily, but, I mean, there's guys here that, that, are, that help guys get better. Honestly, I wish I could still do my own homework with position guys because I'd rather have that fall on me than, than a card. That's how it was over there. That's the culture. Winning, winning is a culture. That I'm start, that's what I'm starting to realize. So this is what I'm starting to realize. This team, besides more talent, besides more pitching, they probably do need that leader that Keith Hernandez now Keith was also a great player but he was the leader that that young Met team needed uh back in the 90s I think the leader of that team was Robin Ventura I think that that free agent signing going into 1999 helped take a team that had choked away a playoff spot in 98 and now there was a leader I don't think Mike Piazza was a leader and that doesn't make him less of a great player but when I think of that 99-2000 team, I don't think of Piazza as the leader. I think more of Robin Ventura as the leader. So you do, it doesn't necessarily have to be your best player. Because right now, 
as much as I love Pete Alonso, as much as I want the Mets to re-sign Pete Alonso, he's not the leader of that team. I don't think there's any question. That's not a fatal flaw. That doesn't mean they shouldn't re-sign him. But when you're building a team, you probably need to think, okay, along with talent, there needs to be someone in that room. He mentioned Yadier Molina and Adam Wainwright. I heard stories about Adam Wainwright that he would basically take the pitching staff together and say, we're taking extra batting practice. We got to take this seriously. We get two, three at-bats a game. Uh, We help ourselves out. We cannot take it for granted. And Adam Wainwright was a professional major league hitter, at least for the standard of being a pitcher. But I remember hearing those stories that, you know, we got to take it seriously. Yeah, our job is to pitch, but we got to take the job of two, three at-bats a night seriously as well. So there's a value to that. And maybe the Mets don't have that. You know, as talented as Lindor is, as talented as Pete is, as talented as Nimmo is, maybe they don't have that. I don't think that means you got to break it apart. I don't think that means you got to trade guys away because when you have talent, talent matters. You know, it's tough to replace guys as talented as those three core players of Brandon Nimmo, Francisco Lindor, and Pete Alonso. In fact, play the game in your head. How would you replace any of those three guys? It's very tough. We went over it last year when talking about Nimmo's free agency, and it seemed real that they could lose him. We talked about how do you replace Brandon Nimmo, and it was impossible. It's tough. Yeah, there's some other elite-level shortstops in Major League Baseball right now. They're all signed. It's not like you just walk into a store and pick up someone to replace Francisco Lindor. And the same thing with Pete. How many guys are as reliably sluggerific as Pete Alonzo? That's a term I think I just made up, but it makes sense. I'm, I'm, sluggerific. I, I'm going to make a t-shirt out of that. You like that Slugger, one? Sluggerific. So I, I think that my biggest lesson from Tommy <laughs> Pham is I think this roster of position players is going to need a good, strong veteran leader. You may suggest it's just bringing Tommy Pham back. I don't know. I think it may need to be a guy of a higher, a higher stature. Well, can I ask a question here? Because this is now making me think outside the box, too, of like the other 29 teams in the league. Now, obviously, you look across town, Aaron Judge, leader of the Yankees. But you look at the Angels, for example, right? Because we're mm-hmm. talking about Shoei Otani. Like, who was the leader on that team? Was it Mike Trout? Was it Shoei Otani? Were they really the leaders on that team? Were they the leaders that the Angels needed? Because I, we've <laughs> never seen the Angels do anything spectacular at all. Those are two best players on the team, but not they don't have to be the leaders, though. So who is? Yeah, look, I I think that sometimes leaders of teams are not necessarily their best players. Like Yachty, Yachty's a Hall of Famer, but he was never the Cardinals' best player. I mean, he was just, and maybe it's different because he's a catcher, but I, I think that leadership comes in a variety of ways. And I do think that that's one of the things David Stearns is going to have to look at during this offseason. And that's where a manager matters. That's where a manager is important. Now, speaking of a manager, in this interview that Tommy did, it's really one interview. He met the media before the World Series and was asked a lot of questions and gave a lot of answers. One of the things he was also asked about was the lineup and Buck Showalter. Because early on in his tenure last year, Tommy Pham was not playing a lot. And it bothered him. He mentioned it. Like, I was told I was going to play a lot more. Tommy Pham said that on a couple of occasions, Buck Showalter would pull him aside 
to explain why he wasn't starting, despite having a good history against that night's pitcher. Buck showed him a sheet of paper that displayed what fam projected performance would be. Let me read that one more time. This is from Newsday. Buck showed him a sheet of paper that displayed what fam's projected performance would be, the handiwork of the analytics department rather than his past success, and that's what went into the lineup decision. <laughs> that, that doesn't even make any sense to me. So let me get this straight. Tommy Pham would have great numbers against the starting pitcher. He would not be in the lineup because the analytics department presented Buck a sheet of paper that displayed what they projected Tommy Pham's performance to be. May I ask a dumb question? If Tommy had success against that pitcher, what are they using to project that he would not succeed that given night? Is it the Beningo and Roberts logic of, well, he's due? <laughs> I mean, like, well, what, what would even lead to that kind of insight? Uh, I mean, I I could take an educated guess, but I don't want to because that's embarrassing. I'm hoping – I mean, I've heard, like, rumblings of some people getting fired recently. I never asked for anybody's job to be gone. But whoever came up with those numbers, they need to be gone. I'm sorry. That's just dumb. That is just dumb. Well, I, and that's, that's an ass-backward thing. This is the ass-backwards culture of the Mets. Well, it's – but it also is another example that I am – I'm probably going to have to take a big L on that Buck was not making out these lineups. That, and maybe that's phrased incorrectly. He was making out the lineups, but he was taking the information presented to him, and instead of saying, hey, thanks for the info that you're projecting Tommy Pham isn't going to play well, he used it. Because here in this example, he's explaining to Tommy Pham, here's why I'm not playing you. Because these analytics tell me you're not going to perform tonight. So it's kind of a semantical thing, Pete. He made the lineup, but why did he make the lineup? Did he make the lineup because of information that was presented to him by the analytics department that maybe he doesn't even like, but he made that lineup anyway? I don't know. Well, you know that Buck said that, and like we're like, you know, this is full, this is bullshit. I have no idea why I just said that to you, but they told me to say it. So <laughs> that that that's that's it. But and the reality is, and I, this is, I'm going to support Buck in this case. We all knew he needed to go. It wasn't the right fit anymore. But Buck Showalter loved his job. I think wanted to keep his job. And when you have bosses telling you, you basically have to do this. What we're telling you. Uh, you, you bow down. You you you're taking all the all the powers taken away from you. Yeah, and I I think that's going to remain the same. You know, even if Craig Council's the manager, I mean, David Stearns and Craig Council's relationship in Milwaukee was probably pretty similar. And it's not. I don't even think it's bowing down. I think it's that the front office just has a lot more say in those decisions. It doesn't mean Craig Council or Buck Showalter couldn't make their own lineup necessarily. But when they're being given this information and being pushed a certain way, maybe sometimes they just accept that. But we had already heard the story from earlier this offseason that Daniel Vogelback was pushed on Buck Showalter. And now we get this Tommy Pham line of projected performance said not to play him. And by the way, here's how screwed up the projected performance was. Tommy Pham ended up being their most consistent offensive player before he was traded at the trade deadline. So... What the hell did the projected performance know? Here's also what Pham said about Buck. Uh, that's what it was like. This is what Buck was telling me. And that's why I respect Buck. 
Buck's a great guy. He was being honest with me. He was like, they want me to make this lineup like this. I said, that's crazy, but that's the way the game is today. So <laughs> Buck is being told to do this lineup. Uh, they're twisting his arm to do this lineup. They're insisting, however you want to freaking phrase it. Yeah, I guess all of our fears, not mine, because I didn't think it was the case. I guess they were true. He was being told or heavily suggested, put this guy in the lineup. Don't put that guy in the lineup. And it's not being, it's not going to change. I mean, that's just the way baseball is now. It's just going to be a different front office telling a different manager or suggesting to a different manager, this is who should play, this who should not play. And honestly, for all of us, we're going to like it if they win, and we're going to like it if it's the players we want to see play. We get frustrated when it's guys who our eyes are telling us should not be playing. Daniel Vogelback was a mess. Our eyes were telling us this guy can't play. If the analytics department is going to give us projected stats that would have said, play Francisco Alvarez all the time at catcher, Pete and I would have been happy. We'd have been like, great, trust those analytics. Can I see the, uh, I really do want to see the analytics that said, like, Daniel Vogelback is a must start versus this pitcher. <laughs> I know. <laughs> which, one, which game was that? No, I know. It does not make any sense. We got a lot of pods coming up over the next few weeks as we creep into the offseason, including coming up in a few days. And I want everybody to think about this one because it's a complicated question. You could email your opinions to RicoB at gmail.com. You could tweet at me, Evan Roberts, WFAN, or you could just wait to hear Pete and I break this thing down in a couple of days. And that is this. Would you rather sign Shohei Otani as a free agent this upcoming offseason, or would you rather wait a year and sign Juan Soto when he gets to free agency? It's a complicated question. I think trading for Juan Soto, obviously an option, does not fit this team very well. I don't know how in favor I would be in that. You'd have to give up a lot of top-end prospects for one year of Juan Soto when you could simply sign him as a free agent a year from now. And I do believe with Juan being a Scott Boris guy and Juan being someone who turned down, what was it, $400 million a few years ago from the Washington Nationals, Juan Soto is a mortal lock to get the free agency. I also think Juan Soto is a mortal lock to go to the highest bidder. I think it's pretty simple with him. Now, I have read he prefers the East Coast, which is great to hear. Well, good, because that's where the highest bid's coming. So it makes sense. So I frame this question in the most simplest terms. It's not about trading for Juan Soto. Don't get caught in those weeds. We can do a different podcast about that because I don't think it's a realistic option, believe it or not, nor do I think is it a smart option. So it is simply Juan Soto and Shohei Otani, this year Shohei, next year Soto, are on the verge of assigning historic contracts. In fact, if I had to guess right now, I think they're both getting close to $500 million over the course of their contract. I think it's going to be that crazy. And I think Pete and I have to admit to you right now that as much as we love Steve Cohen and as much as Steve is committed to spending, I find it, tell me if I'm wrong, very difficult to believe he would invest in both Juan Soto and Shohei Otani. And that's why I make it in either or, because as much as he spends, is he really going to spend a billion dollars in the next two years on those two players? 
No, but I want him to say yes. <laughs> I would love for him. I would love for him just to take out his his sack of cash and say, you know what? Bring everybody. Well, I look, don't care. The, the easiest answer to the question is just sign both. But I just don't think it's that realistic. And I will leave you with this before we discuss this next week. I thought long and hard about this answer. Who would I take? Shohei Otani, who, if the Mets sign this offseason, would be going into his age 29 season, not being able to pitch, but being able to hit. Or would I want to wait for Juan Soto, who I would not have this year, and I'd sign him next year going into his age 26 season? So there's a four-year age difference, but I do get the year of Otani now, even if it includes him not pitching. I will tell you that I made my decision. And it ain't that difficult. And I don't even think it's that close. My answer is Shohei Otani. And on the very next Rico Bronya, I'll explain why. And you can argue with me. Or say, boy, that makes a lot of sense. So that's coming up soon. The Rico B at gmail.com. If you want to email with thoughts, Juan Soto in 2025, Shohei Otani in 2024. Who do you want? We appreciate you listening and downloading. You can check out Pete on the Midday Show with Sal and Brandon, me and Tiki during the week at 2. Thank you for listening to Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. 